to stay in here this morning. Hey, one thing I want to bring to your attention is that at the end of each pew, there ought to be a card. If you haven't been here the last two weeks, we're asking for your family information, and there's just one of these that's needed per family. Uh, We are upgrading our church database system, and we are needing the best uh, information that you can give us, so name, birthday, cell number, email, and then the rest of your family. And this is going to help us as we connect with each other and we utilize different parts of that, that system, even in our giving system, and we'll be talking about that in the weeks to come. But if you haven't been here and you haven't filled out a card, if you'll take an opportunity uh, during this time to fill that out, and then later in the service when the offering plate is passed, you can just put that in the offering plate or you can hand it to a staff member. I want to ask you this morning, when people look at your life, And they observe your actions, your words, your lifestyle. What does that say to them about who God is? When people look at your life and how you live, what does it communicate for you as a believer to those around you What does it say about who God is? What does it reflect? I'm I'm saying in the outward sense, just them observing. They can't look at your heart, but your lifestyle, your actions, your words, what does it say about who God is? King David, who is described by the Scriptures as a man after God's own heart, When he took an objective look at his life, he saw some inconsistencies between the outward and the inward. I think many times it's hard for us to see this in our own lives. But as David looked at his life, he saw some inconsistencies between the passion that he had for God but what he was projecting outwardly. In David's case, it was the difference between his house that he had built as king and God's house uh, that he said he worshipped. When David became established in Jerusalem, uh, the scripture tells us that he built this massive palace, probably spared no expense. There came a point in his life when he began to look at that and he looked there in Jerusalem and he had brought up the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle and he had put it in Jerusalem and he had 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 them erect a tent around it. I don't know how many years passed, but I think this began to gnaw at David. And he looks at his elaborate house And then he looks at, quote-unquote, God's house in a tent, and he goes, wow, that that doesn't look very good. What does that say? What is it projecting about where my priorities are? And David asked to build God a house that would represent and reflect the greatness and the glory of God. 
Hmm. A legitimate request, God says, no, you're not the one. David was, he said that David was a man of war. David was still establishing uh, the kingdom of Israel. And God says to David, but your son will build me a house that will represent and reflect my greatness and glory. Before David dies, he collects supplies for a house that will be beyond belief. And he, he actually even, I think, drew up plans. And he patterned the plans of that temple after the tabernacle that God had instructed them to build in uh, the wilderness. And I, I don't know if you get this, but about, I don't know, 400 years have passed. They built this tent and it had an inner tent, and it had certain contents to it. And they, when they had traveled around in the wilderness, this tent, they'd pack up the tent, and they'd go to the next location. They'd put it down. And um, when they got to the promised land, the tabernacle eventually ends up, the tent part of it, and the altar specifically, ends up in a city by the name of Gibeon, which is about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. But when David establishes himself in Jerusalem, he brings the Ark of the Covenant, which is the very heart of the tabernacle and the worship of God, and he brings it to Jerusalem, and that's when he, he puts a tent around it. And He's a man of war, and he, yes, he begins to accumulate wealth, and he, um, he builds him a huge house, and he goes, God, I mean, this, it's inconsistent with what I believe and what I, I'm passionate about. And God chooses his son, Solomon, who's the next king, which is our topic for today, to build a house, a temple, to represent and reflect the glory and the greatness of God. As I studied this this week, it was the word glory that struck me. The house that Solomon was to build was to be a place of glory. And I thought, why? Why did it have to be so glorious? Because the God that it represents and reflects is a God of greatness and a God of glory. And it only seems consistent that if that is who God is, that ought to be the outward manifestation here on earth of the glory of God. In these Sundays during 2019, we are tracing the story of redemption through the Bible and looking at Big themes and parts of the story, actually 50 sermons from a 30,000-foot view. Many times we delve into the, the, the minute details of the story and we miss the big picture. In the midst of this year, we will see that story and we will see characters. And many times the story is told through the personalities of the Bible, like David and Solomon. And there are events that happen to those characters. There are even places that become significant. But when we come to the temple, Solomon's temple, there is an object that becomes extremely significant and will be traced through the rest of the story. And so when I divided this up, when I came to Solomon, I said there has to be a sermon on the temple. 
When you study Solomon's life, there are really four things about Solomon's life. And the first one actually comes from his name. He was a man of peace. Uh, David wins a lot of the battles and establishes the kingdom. Um, Solomon becomes the king in a time of peace. The second thing about Solomon was his wealth. We're not actually going to have a sermon on his wealth. Sorry about that. The wealthiest man of his day. The third aspect of Solomon's life was his wisdom. Next Sunday, Byron's going to cover that. All I've asked him to do is Solomon's wisdom. That's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Yeah, that, I mean, I, that's very doable. Um, those three components, the peace, the wealth, and the wisdom, lead to his greatest outward accomplishment, which is the temple. And I want to read about that, and I want to pick up the story in 2 Chronicles chapter 2. It's not by chance that we come to 2 Chronicles. There is also a account of this in 1 Kings. Um, 1 and 2 Chronicles is David-centric. It focuses on David and his lineage and, uh, that led up to him, and then the kings that followed him, and, and focuses on Judah. 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings tell much of the same history, but it does not have the spiritual note, and it includes all of the tribes of Israel. And so when I read this morning, I read from 2 Chronicles, which is a spiritual perspective of the history of David and his family. And in chapter 2 of 2 Chronicles, uh, the story tells us that the temple was built by Solomon to reflect God's glory. Notice 2 Chronicles 2, verse 1. Then Solomon determined to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal house for himself. Now, just a disclaimer, he spends seven years building God's temple. He spends 13 years building his own house. But don't be hating on the brother. I'm just telling you, I, I need to go ahead for full disclosure and tell you he spent longer on his house than he did God's house. But anyhow, verse 2. Solomon selected 70,000 men to bear burdens, 80,000 to quarry stone in the mountains, and 3,600 to oversee them. Then Solomon sent to Hiram, king of Tyre. He becomes the master architect. And this is what he writes. As you have dealt with David my father and sent him cedars to build himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me. Behold, I am building a temple for the name of the Lord my God to dedicate it to him, to burn before him sweet incense for the continual showbread, for the burnt offerings morning and evening, on the Sabbaths, on the new moons, and on the set feast of the Lord our God. This is an ordinance forever to Israel. And the temple which I build will be great for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a temple since heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build him a temple except to burn sacrifice before him? Therefore send me at once a man skilled to work in gold and silver, in bronze and iron, in purple and crimson and blue, who has skill to engrave with the skillful men 
who are with me in Judah, in Jerusalem, whom David my father provided. Also send me cedar and cypress and algum logs from Lebanon. For I know that your servants have skill to cut timber in Lebanon. And indeed my servants will be with your servants to prepare timber for me in abundance. Here it is. For the temple which I am about to build shall be great and wonderful. And indeed I will give to your servants, the woodsmen who cut timber, 20,000 cores of ground wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of oil. The temple was built from its very inception to reflect the glory of God. Hiram of Tyre becomes the master architect who is able to construct a building that would be worthy of God's glory. And even though it is to be worthy of God's glory, Solomon says that God will transcend that building. There is no building that contained God or could be completely worthy of who he is, but it will be great and wonderful. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now Solomon built, began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Remember last week we looked at a map. Mount, the original city of David, which is also called Zion, is a little ridge that was only about 60 acres of land. But it was at a lower level, but it had a wall around it. But up the hill from that is a higher elevation that is Mount Moriah. It is where Abraham uh, had gone to sacrifice his son Isaac. It is where David uh, in, confronted the death angel and God spared the people at that point, uh, the threshing floor of Ornan. Uh, and he sanctifies that place to be the place where God's house will be. He says, where the Lord has appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And he began to build on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. This is the foundation which Solomon laid for the building, for building the house of God. The length was 60 cubits. A cubit is about 18 inches uh, from the tip of a man's finger to his elbow. Uh, by cubits according to the former measure, and the width 20 cubits. And so you get the sense, well, the date of the building, and this is on your reference sheet, so if you haven't been here, there is a, at the end of your pew, there is a reference sheet that gives you a lot of these details. I apologize this week that when I clipped and pasted this, I forgot to change the title at the top. Uh, even though the title is wrong, the information at the bottom is correct. But you can see that... It took Solomon seven years from 967 to 960 to build uh, the tabernacle built on Mount Moriah. Um, the actual temple was 30 feet by 90 feet. So there is a building and there are several other courts and we'll talk about those here in just a minute. But the actual building is 30 by 90, which is significant. It was twice as large as the tabernacle was. It was on a grander scale. At the end of chapter 4, so Solomon talks about details of constructing, and we'll, we'll look at some pictures here in a minute, um, and he also makes the contents, but it says at the end of chapter 4, verse 19, thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of God. 
the altar of gold and the tables on which was the showbread and the lampstands and their lamps of pure gold to burn in the prescribed manner in the front of the inner sanctuary with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, of purest gold, the trimmers, the bowls, uh, the ladles, the censers of pure gold, as for the entry of the sanctuary in its inner doors to the most holy place and the doors of the main hall of the temple were gold. And I'm going to show you what scholars think it looked like, but the sense, you got to get this, when you begin to total just the amount of gold that was used, Solomon used 23 tons of gold. Uh, you can't even calculate that value. What would that be like? 46,000 pounds of gold. You don't even sell gold by the pound. I could, I could show off by, yeah, no, I can't. Uh, going down to ounces, but no, I can't do that in my head. The glory of the place would have been unbelievable. The amount of money and resources that was spent on it was incredible. In the very heart of it was the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was a room that was 30 foot by 30 foot. Everything was covered in gold. And on the back wall, there were, there were cherubim, two of them that stretched the whole 30 feet. The only thing in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and the wall, the doorway, was sectioned off by a veil. The next room out was 30 by 60. It was called the Holy Place. It had three objects, or three kinds of objects. It had lampstands. There were ten of those. The original tabernacle had one. It had ten tables for the showbread that were changed out every week. The lamps burned, burned 24 hours a day. The showbread was on ten tables. And then there was an altar of incense that was burned every morning and every evening. When you went out, that was the building that was covered that had a roof. 30 foot by 90 foot. There was a court outside that was the court of the priest. And it had several objects in it. Primarily, though, the most significant is it had the altar in which they burned animals. They had animal sacrifice on that altar, and they also had a huge basin uh, for water for the cleansing, the washing. Actually, it predates our baptism, but for the priest. Uh, hey, Peyton, can we show a picture? This is just our understanding. This is not the actual Ark of the Covenant. I'll talk about that here in just a minute. This is the box. Oh, I, I, it's about two foot by four foot, covered in all gold. Uh, originally, there were three objects in it, Brother Barry. Uh, but Aaron's rod that budded is gone. The jar of manna is gone. The only thing that is left at this point are the Ten Commandments on the tablets. Um, that was the only thing inside. Can we show the next picture that shows the court of the priest? And this is an, just a scholar's understanding, but you can see the, uh, uh, the altar where they, had, they were burning sacrifices over here on the left side. And then you see this elaborate basin that held about 8,000 gallons of water. <laughs> Everything's on a massive scale, and they had the 12 oxen, and they had the other basins. It was, it was quite something. And then if we can show the last picture... Uh, 
Ted and Barbara, you've actually been here. This is an outdoor um, model of the temple in Jerusalem. And, uh, oh, I don't know. I don't want to go into great detail here. Uh, this is the actual 30 by 90 structure that has the Holy of Holies in the back, the holy place. There's a gold door there. There's two uh, pillars. And then uh, there is a court. That inner court is where the sacrifice occurs. This outer court is where uh, the worshipers came, this outer court. This is the court of the, of the Israelites. The Jews could come to this court. The outer court becomes a court with its colonnades and all that anyone could come to. And so Solomon completes that. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 2, it talks about the completion and the dedication of that place. It says, now Solomon, uh, 2 Chronicles 5, verse 2, now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the chief fathers of the children of Israel in Jerusalem that they might bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which was the original part of the city, which is Zion. They're bringing it up to Mount Moriah out of the little tent it's been in after seven years. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with the king at the feast, which was in the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came and the Levites took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings, which were in the tabernacle. The priest and the Levites brought them up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him, assembled with him before the ark, were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. Um, at the end of the chapter, verse 13. Indeed it came to pass, when the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and praise the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Here, here it is. That the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud. Here's the statement. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. <laughs> I don't even know what all that's describing. They, for seven years, they, bought, they built a place that would represent and reflect the glory of God. And when they came to the time of dedication, uh, what the Hebrews would have called the Shekinah glory of God rested on that place. It was the same cloud that had uh, hovered over the tabernacle in the wilderness. The Shekinah glory of God filled that place. I don't know, even know where the word Shekinah comes from. I think it, it means dwelling. And it, it, the Shekinah glory of God spoke of the, the visible presence of God. They built it for the glory of God, and God showed up in His glory to that place to such an extent 
That whatever they had planned, whatever they thought they were going to do, they just shut it down because God had showed up. If we, if we look to the end of the story, in chapter 6, Solomon speaks to the people about the covenant that they have made with God. Solomon prays at the end of verse 7, at the end of chapter 6. In verse 7, this is what it says. Verse 1. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good and his mercy endures forever. Um, I am struck by their response to the glory of God. They built a house for the glory of God. God shows up in his glory to such an extent that they couldn't even go into the house. They're just in the courtyards. And it says that the people fell down in a spirit of worship and surrender and obedience to the greatness and the glory of God. I don't want you to miss that. There is more to the worship than the glory of the place. There's even more worship. There's more to the worship than just the glory of God, the outward practice of all that they were doing in that place. It was the hearts of the people who came to the place of complete surrender to God, who gave themselves in worship to God that was just as significant as everything else. At the end of the dedication, God speaks to Solomon to the people. And I want, I want to end with this. This is my last scripture. Verse 19, 2 Chronicles 7. This is the warning that God gives them. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land which I have given them, and this house which I have sanctified for my name I will cast out of my sight and will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done this to this land and this house? Then they will answer, because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity on them. And in the years to come, that's what happened. The people whose hearts had been 
completely surrendered to God, turned away from God and worshipped other gods. And in 587, God sends the Babylonians and the Babylonians level everything that had been built for the glory of God. It still was a glorious place. They were still sacrificing. They were still doing the ritual. They were lighting the incense every morning, every night. They were changing out the showbread every week. They were sacrificing on the altar every morning, every night. But do you understand? Their hearts that were to be holy gods had gone away from God. And the the outward manifestation has no significance apart from a heart that is holy God's. 587, we'll see this in the sermons to come, but and you can see it on your reference sheet because it's, it's significant to follow the temple throughout the rest of the story. The exiles that come back in the time of Zerubbabel build another temple does not have the glory of Solomon's temple. Actually, the Ark of the Covenant. Actually, in 587, to answer your question, some of you are going to ask me, Brother Barry, we don't know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant after 587. No mention of it historically, scripturally. We don't know. We don't know if the Babylonians took it. We don't know if it went to Egypt. Uh, Zerubbabel's temple. It strikes me they build another temple when they come back. The Ark of the Covenant is not there. That temple is desecrated. Brother Shane, by Antiochus Epiphanes in 168. The Romans plundered in 63. King Herod the Great begins one that takes them some 84 years to build. And eventually in 70 A.D., the Romans come and destroy the temple. And there is no temple to this day. Because the people's hearts had turned away from God. What the scripture tells us is that our lives... As the believers of Christ, our lives are to represent and reflect the glory of God. People are to look at the outward manifestation of our faith, our actions, our words, our lifestyle, and it ought to point them to the glory of God. We are the temple. (laughs) Because the earthly temple has been destroyed... Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Or do you not know that your body, this is to Christians, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought, with, bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Twofold challenge. Your life, my life, is to represent and reflect the glory and the greatness of God. People ought to see an outward manifestation just like the temple, which are the lives that we live now. But I'll tell you secondly, that the outward only has significance when the inward 
is right. The tendency in our lives, just like the Jewish people, were to continue with the outward show of religion and the sacrifices and the practices and all those things when our hearts have departed from God. And just as significant as the place of worship for us as believers, which are our lives that we live, is the heart of the worshiper that says, God, that I I am wholly yours. And when there is a commitment of our heart and life to say, I am wholly yours, and there is an outward manifestation then the glory of God dwells in that place. And there's power in that place. The outward manifestation, but also the inward reality of hearts that are wholly His. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, today, uh, we pray as we've looked at the story of Solomon and the house that he built for your glory that Father we would be challenged in our own lives to reflect and represent your glory by the lives that we live Father I pray that as our hearts tend to stray from you that you would draw us back to yourself and Father we would come to the place where we are wholly yours And so, Father, we give you this time, and we pray that all that we would do, the decisions that we would make, would be for your glory, Father, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Worthy of every song we could